HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com All right, another Tuesday, 1 o'clock, and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where the scent of pizza fills the air. And excited to be on the line today with Alan Leibowitz of Zingerman's Coffee Company. Want to tuck into some... um, an aspect of farming, I think, that I, I have, it doesn't often occur to me, but a way I start every day, and, and that's obviously coffee. Alan, it's so great to have you on the show. How's it going in Ann Arbor, Michigan? It's going great here in scenic Ann Arbor. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Great. Well, we have a, a lot to cover, so I want to jump right in. But um, first off, why don't, why don't you give us a little background on Zingerman's Coffee Company and, and how you got started and what exactly is it that you guys do? Yeah, you know, Zingerman's uh, in Ann Arbor is uh, uh, kind of a loose confederation of food-related businesses. It started off as Zingerman's Delicatessen, uh, whom you worked for early on. Yeah, full disclosure, I spent five years at Zingerman's Deli back when I was a student at the University of Michigan, which is where Alan and I met. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they, you know, started off in specialty food. They were focused on uh, artisanally made products and really not even so much artisanally, it's just really kind of uh, 
I guess, traditionally made foods, traditionally and full-flavored foods. And uh, as they grew, they realized that there were some areas in which they could be better, and the best way they could do it was by uh, having a partner that was passionate about a certain business. So after the deli, they went into uh, a bakery, uh, have a, a really phenomenal uh, local bakery, and then they uh, branched out. And long story short, it's now a confederation of eight businesses that are all like-minded. We only go into a business where we've got somebody who is passionate about producing that product that wants to be you know, the best they can be in that product and that want to actually run it day to day because, you know, it's, as you know, like any business from, you know, farming to retail, it's a lot about the relationships of the people. And uh, so Zingerman's Coffee started off in 2003. Uh, we're a wholesale provider. We provide Zingerman's, uh, all of their coffee, and about 150 accounts throughout the country. And uh, we specialize in coffees uh, that are grown in places uh, with whom we have a relationship. So we kind of know the provenance of all of our coffees. That's great. So that's kind of what I want to want to spend the bulk of the show talking about today is kind of the ground to ground process of coffee from how it's grown to how it, uh, you know, ends up in in your coffee making device, whatever that may be. And Ellen, I'm hoping you can kind of take us through that on a general level and then we'll go back and kind of tuck into some of the issues that I'm sure are going to come up. But you know, I uh, I, w- I would love to just have you talk us through, uh, you know, from the ground to the ground. <laughs> That's a, I, l- I like that message. You know, it, it turns out uh, in the coffee's a really, really big crop. It is um, represents a majority of the GNP of some of the post-colonial countries in which it's grown. Places like Ethiopia, they say there's one in 15 of the population is somehow involved in that export, um, even in large industrialized or newly industrialized countries like Brazil. It's a huge uh, amount of their product. Uh, so one of the things that you find in the industry is a lot of people tend to think of coffee, uh, unfortunately, as a commodity where you know it's fungible. That is, there's you can trade any coffee for any coffee. So I was kind of struck more and more as I started getting into the coffee world that Everybody says something to the effect of we carry the world's greatest beans, and that can be somebody from the British Petroleum gas station on the corner to, some, <laughs> you know, to a small micro-roaster. And, uh, you know, one of the things that is very interesting to me is kind of really understanding the transparency and what is it we're dealing with. So, uh, you know, what you mentioned, at some point, coffee, you know, it's uh, somebody is a, is a dirt farmer, and they're farming coffee beans. And, you know, there's a, lot, a few hands that have to handle that before it becomes the grounds, as you've mentioned, in your cup. Uh, and it's a very different product in that, you know, it's pretty disjoint. You're, you and I are used to going to the farmer's market, meeting somebody that's growing a, a produce. We can take that produce or, you know, meat or eggs, and, you know, there's it's a... Uh, one degree of separation between the person that grew it and us. And in coffee, um, there's actually, you know, minimally three or four steps that happen. And uh, a lot of times the growers uh, aren't actually familiar with what the end product even looks like, which is roasted coffee. So at its fundamental level, somebody is growing these coffee beans, which are technically the seed of the coffee fruit. 
and the seed of that, that fruit is called a cherry, and the seeds are what we're after. We, the seeds are dried out uh, and processed uh, in a mill and shipped, but they're not really something you can do anything with until you roast them, which is what we do. And then, you know, we sell them directly to a consumer or to a retail establishment, and then you are actually responsible for preparing them. So, you know, you as a consumer are sitting there making a cup of coffee. Um, so, you know, broadly, those are the people that handle it. It's the grower, the processor of the, of the grown fruit, uh, some sort of export-import connection, a roaster, and then the end consumer. Okay, so so let's let's start at that first stage, the grower. Now, I know that you have had a had an opportunity to to travel a bit and sp- actually spend some time on uh, a number of different you know coffee plantations. So, can you you know for for those of us who ha- who haven't had that experience, can you give us a sense of of what you know what a it, it's a tree, right, or is it a is it a shrub? Tech? I mean, just kind of wondering like what the actual plant looks like, you know, how long it takes from when you plant it to, to when you can harvest the, the seed and, and what are kind of the initial, you know, stages of becoming a coffee producer, a coffee farmer? Yeah, uh, well, uh, fundamentally, coffee is a woody, perennial evergreen. Um, it's not frost-hardy, so it's only grown in tropical climates. You know, which literally means between the two tropics. If you look at a map of where coffee is grown, it's going to be in the belt around the equator. Um, depends on the varietal of the tree, but uh, most trees on large uh, commercial farms will be pruned to usually, you know, somewhere between five and ten feet. Wild trees can grow, you know, thirty feet on up, uh, but they have an incredibly large. Uh, rich, waxy, deep green leaves that the leaves are as, almost as big as uh, as long as as big as a banana is long. Oh wow! And yeah, and it's it's actually pretty interesting. We just somebody brought us a, a coffee plant recently. They smuggled some beans back into the country, some raw agricultural product, Ooh. and they grew them. And they brought us a two and a half year old tree, and these things they're they're so incredibly beautiful to look at that. They almost look like uh, plastic. I mean, they're waxy, green, uniformly rich, long leaves. And they don't, uh, so when you, you know, you start them like anything, you know, you start them as seedlings, you get little coffee sprouts. They usually spend uh, the first six months in a nursery uh, in, in, a, in, the, in the best practice. And uh, usually they're not harvested commercially till about year three. And um, in the, again, in the best practices, people prune these down, not unlike you would prune down uh, grapevines. And you, you know, you prune them for ease of picking, uh, and you prune them, you know, really for health. And uh, in the, not unlike grapes, there are different varietals. Like uh, for any, you know, how there you might plant Merlot or Cabernet grapes. In the coffee world, there are varietals as well, and the uh, varietals. Uh, we, people can pretty much trace genetically back to Africa. It's spread throughout the uh, tropical world as the spread of colonial trading spread. So it went through the, the Dutch, uh, the French, and the English. And uh, so when you see coffee in uh, Indonesia, it's because the Dutch kind of controlled Indonesia. Okay. And then, you know, later to India, which actually has a huge coffee history. Uh, in India, they grow almost as much coffee as they do tea. Uh, but you know, tea, coffee, and uh, black pepper are 
very important crops there. And uh, coffee itself really kind of spread through that kind of, un- this is kind of the dark history of coffee, but it spread along with colonialism. Okay. So the so you have a tree, you said it's about, you know, year three when you can start harvesting um, how, how does that look in the in the cycle of the of the tree? I mean, are are you doing one harvest a year, two, and and you said it's the seed. So uh, there, there's a you know the berry that the berry that the seed is within. You know how how does how does that work? Yeah, it's it's funny that uh, coffee is such an unusual cr- uh, crop in many many regards. Uh, a lot of what we might talk about, we might say in general and. I mean this because don't tick, uh, there's there's no absolutes in coffee, but broadly speaking, uh, you know, right now, like if you're in uh, Brazil, the coffees are soon the trees are going to start to flower now, and uh, they'll be ready to start picking probably somewhere between you know mid July and September. And what's really strange about coffee, unlike a lot of um, crops, is the You've got this really dense, really large foliage. Then you've got these uh, large groups of fruit, these cherries that are um, on the plant. And because of the combination of the shade from the leaves and uh, how far they are in the plant, they never ripen at the same time, like ever. So you mean within the, the like on one tree, the, right, they're on, ripe in different different periods. Correct. Okay. Right, so if if you're going through a, a plot and you know you've got an acre of coffee trees, I mean, on one uh, one branch, these things are really really dense foliage, but on one branch where you might see 300 coffee cherries, you know, within within a foot, uh, you'll fu- you'll get everything from the range of green unripe to partially ripe to fully ripe, and then some that might even actually start to be uh, sun dried, all on the same tree. So as a farmer, it's, it's a really unique uh, product. You have to make some decisions when you're growing coffee. Do you want to uh, pick, you know, when, when do you pick? How many times are you going to pick a certain area? Because in coffee, you almost never, in a high-quality farm, you n- never pick everything at once because you will never get coffee that's ripe at the same time. Okay. So it's, it's not unusual. And, you know, in the best practice is you'll go through, uh, you know, pick a field or a part of a field, and then come back, and then, you know, some farms, they, they might pick six, seven times uh, just so that they're only picking the best product. And are these, are these I'm assuming, being, uh, are, are you talking about being picked by hand, or is there, you know, machine picking, or, I'm, you know, I'm assuming there's probably both, but... Yeah, there's uh, some machine picking. It's mostly, uh, frankly, there's, there's uh, machine picking in Hawaii. There's uh, some quite a bit of machine harvesting in Brazil and uh but the you know the problem with machine harvesting is it goes through and it picks everything right and uh but you know in the best practice so the, one of the interesting pieces about this picking process is you have a decision to make if you're a grower right do you pick only things that are ripe uh because apparently you know you've got a market and you want to produce high quality coffee or do you pick everything out and sell it as a lower grade of coffee? Right. And then the third choice is, do you pick everything and then sort it using some process so that you've got, out of the single picking, a high-grade and a low-grade coffee? And there are 
there's the whole range of things depending on the country you're in, um, the level of technology. You know, if you're in a uh, Central American country where it's mostly uh, manual uh, labor, manual sorting, you know, where somebody literally will pick coffee, lay them out, and manually separate the cherries out by color. Uh, that's kind of on one end. On the high end, in a farm in Brazil, they might float them in a tank and take the dense ripe fruit uh, and send them down one stream and then send the floaters down the other. Uh, in some processing, they use gravity. Uh, uh, they can separate by physical density of the bean uh, using what's called a gravity separation table, which vibrates the coffee. And at the extreme high end in Brazil, they're actually sorting coffee by color with uh, lasers, both wow. and UV lasers. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, some of the coffee we buy from one particular large farm in Brazil, uh, which is a, a long story maybe we can get back to, but um, that coffee is actually sorted seven different ways. From the, the second it's picked, it goes through seven different steps, uh, and it's all about uniformity. So they, as a farmer, have, as a large farm, they've invested in mechanical processes and some high-tech processes, uh, but they also get extremely fine quality control, and they get a, a, a significant premium for their coffee because, you know, it's really uniform. Wow. Alan, how big is it? Is, how big are we talking about is the, is the cherry? I mean, I'm picturing like a, you know, like a, a, a sweet black cherry or like a, a tart yeah. cherry. Is it about the same size or is it a no, little... You know, a, a coffee cherry is like, uh, if you had a, a, a really nice blueberry, let's say you had a big blueberry that was about the size of the tip of your pinky, like your, your pinky's fingernail. Uh-huh. You know, about that big round, what does that maybe half an inch, three-eighths of an inch round? Okay. And um, the interesting thing about these cherries is when they're ripe, uh, they're, uh, they've got a very, very sweet pulp around the seed, but there's a very, very small amount of skin on the a coffee cherry has a very, very thin amount of pulp and a, a really big seed. It's kind of the opposite of what we think of normally as a fruit. Okay. Like, you know how, like, if you think of a peach, normally there's, you know, the seed, the pit, uh, and then there's a lot of delicious flesh that we like to eat. Right. Um, and a ch- coffee cherry, there's just a very, very thin layer of that uh, sweet fruit around it because really what you're trying to get out is the seed. Okay. So... Yeah. You're, you know, you're at the, you're at the coffee plantation. You've, you've picked, you've sorted, you have your, your ripe berries. What, what happens then with the ripe berries? What is the the next step in the process? We want to, um, maybe, maybe actually let's take a quick break and then we'll, we'll tuck into that, uh, in just one second.
Okay, man. Well, time got away from me. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Alan. This is fascinating stuff. So, um, you know, before we headed into the break, we were we were kind of talking through coffee up to the point uh, where the ripe cherry has been picked, and then uh, want you to kind of launch into to what's next in as we travel along the world of the you know <laughs> the coffee bean. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny, but it, it is one of those things where there are so many. Uh, steps and so many different paths you can take um, that it's uh, I, I learn something about this every day just a, a small anecdote I have a somebody I have a friend who's been roasting in in the coffee business for about 25 years and he likes to say the, the, the deeper he goes the deeper it looks yeah like the more the more you know the more you know you don't know and I yeah. think to me, that's one of the fascinating things about about coffee is it's this very uh, everyday product that that people of all income levels kind of look to on a daily basis, and yet have really no idea kind of where it comes from or what are these you know the multitude of steps that differentiate the you know the Dunkin' Donuts coffee from the Starbucks coffee from the you know boutique roasters like yourself and and all those steps in between so I think it's it's great to get a sense of just what are you know some things for us to be thinking about yeah and you know the thing that that I think you know you're interested in and one of the things I'm beginning to realize uh, more and more as I'm in the business is that it really does all start at the farm and it's you know to somebody, you know, from the the beginning when they're growing this plant, you know, care about the quality of the uh, fruit that it's going to produce, because uh, at the end of the day, you, you have to start at that level. Um, you can't be a good roaster without great product. A great, and, uh, yeah, raw product. And, and, and two, I think one of the other things that we're not going to kind of have too much time to tuck into today is just really thinking, as you mentioned in the beginning of this, it really is a global, a globally traded product, a global commodity. And, you know, you get back to a lot of those questions from the farm perspective of, you know, how, how are these farmers being compensated for their work? And as consumers, kind of what's our role in kind of asking the right questions of the finished product to make sure that, you know, everyone along the chain is, is being fairly compensated and, and having kind of an understanding of like, what you know what that life looks like for for the farmer i mean i think already you know kind of talking through what we have so far i was i'm surprised to to really start thinking about what it would look like to pick the same tree you know four five six seven times and and to be up there you know picking picking these individual beans essentially by hand you know that, that gives a totally different scope of the product than going and pulling the one pound bag, you know, off the shelf in the, in the grocery store. Yeah. And you know, that's, those are the decisions that, uh, farmers make, you know, if you're a large farm, uh, you, you can say, okay, I'm going to make that investment, uh, where we, you know, you pick things. If you're a small holder and you're selling this to some intermediary and it gets mixed at a mill with everything else, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, you're, if you're not getting paid, to produce or pick the higher quality, then you're not going to produce it. Yeah, there's no incentive. 
Right. Uh, so that does get into some large, you know, <laughs> some larger some issues. larger issues. Well, let's let's save those for another show. Let's kind of get back to to what's happening with the bean. So we yeah. what do we say? We have the ripe, you know, you have the ripe cherry, and and what's kind of the next step? Yeah. So fundamentally, you've got uh, ripe cherry. The next step is getting the seed out, and they're fundamentally uh, kind of keeping it simple. There are two major ways of doing that. One is you spread the ripe cherries out on a patio or, depending on the country, maybe a raised bed that has air flowing underneath it. And you let those cherries themselves dry out in the sun, and that's called natural process. So they kind of ferment inside the, inside the fruit itself, and um, the fruit gets hard on the outside, and then you run them through a mill, which cracks them open, and then you get the seeds out. Okay. So those are called natural processed Coffees are naturals, and um, naturals tend to be uh, very fruity coffees. So if you've ever gone to some place and had an Ethiopian coffee that tasted like blueberry, chances are it was a, a natural processed. And then the second major class are what are called uh, washed coffees, which is very common in uh, uh, Central American and South American coffees where you will uh, take the fruit right off of the tree and hopefully, with it, if you're in the best practice world, within a couple of hours, you run it through a mill that pulps the coffee. So while the coffee still has that moist pulp in it, you run it through these two you know, stones that squish the seed out, and then that goes into a uh, concrete tank where it's uh, fermented for, depending on the country, anywhere from you know six to 30 hours. And then that uh, ferment and all this sticky stuff is washed off. And then they're sent to a patio and dried, where they're they're turned constantly because you're in a tropical environment. You've got a formerly sugary product, which would normally tend to want to ferment or rot on you. Mm-hmm. So you, you squish it out, you ferment it, you wash it, you put it on a patio, you dry it down to about 10 or 11% residual moisture, and then you bag it and export it. Okay, so at that at that stage, is that what you know? Is that where you you get the green beans? I'm, is right. it, that's where we're at, right? Yeah, so. that's exactly it. At that point, actually, that, the coffee in the industry is known as green. Uh, so the farmers are picking a raw product when it's dried uh, down to ten or eleven percent, uh, either uh, because it's a natural or or washed coffee. It gets uh, bagged up, and at that point, it's considered green, and that's the product that's exported and traded around the world. Okay, and so so you have the green coffee. Just kind of as an aside, like how 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 like shelf stable is green coffee? I mean, I'm sure there's a freshness component there, but kind of what is that range? Yeah, there there is generally uh, you want to use uh, crop within one year. Uh, coffee is sold, uh, exported a few ways. The most common for the last, you know, 150 years has been a 60-kilo jute bag. And uh, when you store it, you know, it depends on where you store it. If I store coffee up here in Michigan or if you're in, you know, Brooklyn, which is a large coffee hub, um, you know, if you store in a, a warehouse, it's fairly stable. If you're down in Houston where it's 90% humidity, you know, it's going to, you'll have other issues with it. But uh, usually you don't use coffee more than a year old unless you've taken some very special step, which some companies are doing, where you vacuum pack it in uh, like a, a multi-layer laminate bag. And some people are actually freezing their coffee and holding it in a minus 40 freezer, and you can hold it for a few years in those conditions. But 
in general, you want to use it within a year. Uh, after that, it's considered past crop. And uh, if you're buying past crop because you're a large multinational roaster, um, you're in a whole different league than the specialty coffee that you're probably used to drinking. Okay. And if you're uh, if you're freezing it, I mean, you're doing that, I mean, is that because, wow, this was such an amazing harvest and we want to be able to roast this for the future? Or is it, wow, I got a really great price on this, so I want to buy more than I can roast and sell yeah. right now, or kind of both? Uh, if you're going to freeze green, right, and when we're talking about green unroasted yeah. coffee, you're, you're, you're typically doing that because you've got a great coffee. Uh, and you want to hang on to it or you want to buy a lot of it, and you know you're, it's going to take you nine months to roast it. Uh, but that's, a, that's kind of a, on, the, uh, that's on the very high-end, esoteric world of coffee importing and roasting there. That's a big world too, though, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, coffee is a, it, it's a big world. You know, fundamentally, there's a, it's really amazing. You've got everything. You know, we were talking about farmers, and you've got everything. We just bought some Salvadoran coffee from a woman in Salvador, who has, you know, five children. She completed the Salvadoran education system. She went through grades one through six. She makes a living for her family producing uh, coffee, and she doesn't produce a lot of it. She produces about 5,000 pounds a year. Uh, You've got everything from that to these very large farms in Brazil that are farming, you know, tens of square miles of land, yet these guys are also kind of doing all the right thing for the environment. They've repaired all the damage that had been done, uh, you know, they're spawning na- the native flora and native fauna again, uh, and people love working for them. They're the go-to place to work. So you've got a really interesting wide range of uh, coffee production on all levels. Yeah, and so I, I think like anything that we, as we kind of tuck more into issues around, uh, you know, how food is produced, I think we're, you're finding more and more that things just aren't black and white. And, and I know it's, I think it's, particularly challenging, you know, as a consumer to figure out kind of what are the what are the questions I should be asking and what are the right decisions and what it comes down to. I for me anyway is, you know, finding, you know, a purveyor that that you trust who can do a little bit of that sorting for you and then also kind of deciding on this like hierarchy of decisions, you know, what 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 facets are most important to you. So you, as a coffee roaster, um, you receive the green beans, and then that's kind of the final step in the processing is the actual roasting. Is that correct? Yeah, technically, in, in transforming the green into the roasted is uh, one step. But really, the last step is, you know, you brewing, brewing the coffee. So, you know, if we roasted coffee this morning, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not over till you <laughs> pour water over it and drink it. And, you know, if you pour water over that coffee that we roasted today, if you do that tomorrow, it's going to be much different than if you put that coffee in your cupboard for six months or it sat on a store shelf for a year and then, you you know, you drink it. It's going to taste different. Um, so what we, you know, like is we want, we'd encourage people to think of coffee like fresh bread. You know, you can take bread and put it in the freezer. You can buy coffee, put it in your cupboard for a, a month, but it's not going to be the same as something that just was just roasted. Okay, awesome. Well, Ellen, I'm bummed because we're out of time, um, so we're going to need to to bring you back on because I want to hear a little bit more about the roasting process and then also kind of talk a little bit about, you know, purchasing and how that works for you. But in the meantime, if people want to try some of your coffee, where where can they go? 
Uh, the easiest way uh, to find us is zingermanscoffee.com. Awesome. Great. Well, Ellen, thanks again for coming on the show. Just a couple of other announcements. I uh, want to give a shout out. This week is the Williamsburg uh, Fashion Weekend. You can find out more about that at williamsburgfashionweekend.com. David Sherman, uh, a, a former guest of the Farm Show and the Jillian uh, Lanier Fund will be there. So definitely check them out. And then also um, just keeping up to date on Hurricane Irene Relief. Um, New Yorkers, please check out grownyc.org backslash relief. Um, about 80% of uh, farmers who participate in the green market system were impacted by the storm. 10 to 20% of those have lost anywhere between 80 and 100% of their crops. So please check out GrowNYC to figure out uh, what you can do. Make sure you're getting out there to your farmer's markets and purchasing from these farmers because it makes a huge difference. And tune in next week at 1 o'clock for the Farm Report. Following is a message from the Climate Reality Project. Join us on September 14th to the 15th for 24 Hours of Reality, a presentation delivered in locations around the world sponsored by former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. View the live stream at climaterealityproject.org. Go to our website, tell your friends, join our watch party, and help others learn about what can change in a day. Again, that's climaterealityproject.org. This is a message from Fork and Anchor. Aaron Fitzpatrick, the host of our wine program, Unfiltered, is looking for help on Kickstarter to open Fork and Anchor, a general store inspired by two food-loving ladies with an equal affection for urban life, the sea, and the agricultural paradise of Long Island's North Fork. The store is situated in a growing community of farmers and winemakers and will become a meeting place offering prepared foods, a variety of sun-dries, and a selection of homespun products, many of which will have their origins in New York State. Your backing will help them fulfill their dream of fostering relationships with the community and making the local food system accessible on a broader scale. Search kickstarter.com for Fork and Anchor and donate today.